Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. Dustin Rosen is the founder and managing partner at Wonder Ventures, the premier pre-seed firm in LA. Wonder was an early investor in companies like Whatnot, Clutter, Honey, and Arcadia. He previously was the founder of a venture-backed startup in LA and started his career at William Morris. Dustin Rosen! (laughs) What's up? What's up, Dustin? How's Uh, it going? I am so happy to be here in LA, in person, with you. Long time coming. We go way back. No doubt. So some of the backstory here is Dustin started Wonder right around the time um, that we started Notation. And we called Dustin the, the the notation of LA, and and I think he calls us. I'm honor- we refer to ourselves. I'm honored as to the, be that as the wonder of sorry, the notation of LA, and we're the wonder in New York. Is that right? <laughs> you know, I <laughs> basically just, I like to think of you guys as my virtual partners. I'm a solo GP, and it's really nice to have a fund that's similar, similar stage, similar fund number. And it's great to yep. bounce things off you guys. Feel, feel the same way. And we could talk a little bit later about how we made our partnership official. Yeah. But maybe we'll leave that for the, for the very end as a, as a bonus. But so I guess just to start, tell us a little bit about your backstory, pre, pre-Wonder and, and, and maybe what ultimately led to the founding of Wonder. Yeah. Um, should I go way back to... Let's do it. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. And mo- well, most people know Nick as this cool guy from New York and Brooklyn. He actually lived in Princeton for a year. And uh, we hung out in high school. I 10th mean, junior, grade. Yeah. Sophomore year of high school. Princeton was not the coolest place. And I was not the coolest kid. But this cool cool guy from New York came down. And, and fortunately for me, at least, didn't know a lot of people. And we had a one friend in common and uh, we hung out and didn't really reconnect again until our yeah. mid 20s when we both got into tech. But it, yeah. I remember that year well. It was, it was a lot My of fun. family moved from Brooklyn to New Jersey to Princeton, spent 10th grade there. About a year later, moved back to Brooklyn. So I had a, I don't know, this weird suburban year and Prince went to Princeton High School and Dustin, God bless, was one of one of one of my few friends. So thank you. <laughs> I, I was for that. I was not the king of school. I was I was a strong I nerd. Think we were in chemistry class together. Yes, is that right? Definitely. Yeah, chemistry and yeah, amazing. Maybe maybe economics too. Jeez, I I can't remember. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, okay. It was, okay. It was a good year. So we met, and then I think we connected when you were when you were starting your company. So I I, I was running Pose. I think you were at BetaWorks. Yeah. And yeah. I was running a social app and you were yep. at Betaworks, you know, kind of core New York social app kind of place. And yep. we just reconnected, but I think we were both ready, getting close to our next move, which mm-hmm. we didn't realize at the time would both be starting early stage funds. And that's really where our, you know, the last eight years of reconnecting has come from. How did you go, or times have changed a little bit in the last 10 years. It was unusual as a, you know, person under, I don't know, 40 to start a venture firm 
in 2014 and 2015. And we've probably talked a bunch about why Alex and I did that. Why did you do that? Yeah, I, I guess I, I should catch up the story that, as you said in the intro, I moved out here to work in Hollywood. I had gone to school for business. Everyone went to banking and it wasn't for me. And I went straight to the mailroom, literally wearing a suit, delivering mail, getting coffee at William Morris, yeah. the famous agency, before it merged with Endeavor. And luckily for me, because Hollywood was definitely not for me, I was not cool enough, that firm started a venture fund with Excel and Venrock. And I raised my hand and luckily got hired as an analyst at that venture that fund. That was called I the Mailroom Fund. The Mailroom Fund. Yeah, yeah I remember uh, that. Ironically or not ironically. And yeah. I was 23, LA tech didn't matter. It was still a Hollywood town. And I very luckily was there at that kind of origin of this ecosystem. MySpace had just sold to News Corp and threw me right in the deep end of meeting every founder in town, which was not a lot back then. Right. And a year and a half of that made me want to jump to the other side and be a founder myself. And I raised... What did you do? I'm just curious about yeah. the mailroom fund at that time. This was 20... Before 2018. 2007, 2008. Yeah. 2007, 2008. So yeah. that was really early. So like financial crisis. Financial crisis had just hit. What did you got? Was there like a strategy? I think the reality actually is that there was some strategy of new media, right? MySpace, social media. But the managing partner of that firm was a venture partner at Excel and, you know, a friend and a mentor. And he was an old school tech investor. And so he actually, I think, didn't really like investing in all the new entertainment stuff. So we actually returned the fund on a fintech infrastructure company that <laughs> sold to Amex. We actually got told by Excel we couldn't invest in Riot Games, which would have been a 100Xer for us. There was some conflict of interest thing where if it was over a certain valuation, that was their domain, not ours. Oh, I mean, weird. it was one of these, this is why funds shouldn't have multiple entities with different priorities running Got them. It. So it was yeah. like a JV with Excel and they were like, this is our Exactly. Stuff. AT&T was in there at one yeah. point and it was too, mu too much of a JV. Uh, but I fortunately just soaked up information. I didn't have economics in the fund. I was just there to learn and catapulted me into my founder journey where I said, okay, at 24, I'm going to start a company here in LA, which wasn't that well known of a, of right. a place to start companies at the time and ended up raising three rounds of venture capital. I had 30 employees. I had a social shopping app that competed with Instagram and Pinterest and we got our butts kicked because you've never heard of it, but learned a ton. Well, I've heard of it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you, you remember, most people yeah. don't. That's fine. But the best thing that came out of that was the founder community I built by being right. a founder myself and led me to Wonder Ventures. And so why not start another company rather than a fund? I spent six months thinking I'd start another company. I was really close to starting an Uber for pharmacy business, which, hmm. you know, there's a company Alto now that's a big company. And I learned really front and center as a founder that it's a long journey you know it's five years to fail and 10 years of ups and downs maybe to succeed and uh, to do that lightly without the right motivations and dedication and team is, is not something to take too lightly and it became really apparent in those six months ideating that I saw founders that had all those right ingredients and they were having trouble raising the first million bucks and it became clear I'm probably a better wingman than a CEO. Hmm. And I want to go back all my friends that were starting that next generation of LA companies. And LA has these unfortunate dynamics where we still, I don't even argue, it certainly was true in 2014, but still in 2022, don't have enough angel capital. That there's this natural flow in the Bay Area of IPOs and VPs at Twitter and Uber funding the next generation. And I'd argue even in New York where you are, 
there's people are investors. They've grown up at hedge funds and banks and reinvesting. In yep. LA, unfortunately, it's a little bit more of a spend money than invest money culture. And so Wonder Ventures was formed to invest in those first founders earlier than anyone else. Yep. Well, that is, I mean, in some ways, very, I maybe, maybe self-aware that you would, you were maybe better off supporting the next generation than being a founder yourself. Although I do think that starting these funds and firms is, there's a lot of similarities to founder yeah, we're, journey. We're, we both founded I mean, you, you, you know that. Yeah. Maybe what are the biggest similarities and differences that you've Well, fundraising, noticed? certainly, right? We have to raise money from LPs to build our firms. We have to build some brand. We have to recruit. But in my case, it's recruiting founders who are willing to take my money versus as an entrepreneur recruiting employees who want to come work for you. But I'm also the first person to say it is way easier than being a founder of a company. Because when I had 30 employees and there was personnel issues and all things going on with a lot of people working together, you know, the beauty of being an investor is, and purposely being a passive investor and not a majority investor is, you know, we help. When they call, I answer all hours of the day, but I don't go home with those problems the way the founder does. So I want to talk a little bit about LA as an ecosystem, but maybe before we get there, just want to hear maybe just a touch around like where you started. So you want to start this firm? With Wonder Ventures, yeah. Yeah. So this is a fun one to talk about with you because that initial uh, spark. I and I remember some of these conversations together in maybe 2014 trading notes and maybe doing everything wrong together yeah. around like how to how to get these things off the ground. Yeah, the, the initial spark was that there was talent that was not being funded early enough here yep. in LA. And so I didn't make really any money on my company. It was an aqua hire. And so I, I wanted to be the angel investor that I didn't actually make enough money to become. And luckily I had a single family office LP give us our first 4 million bucks to build that first fund. But I called it an angel fund. We were writing 50, 100K checks. Yep. We were participating, we were angel investing in all the great people we wanted to. But the two learnings there and, and the evolutions that, that you saw, one, portfolio construction, ownership, I didn't think about those as much as I should have in fund one. Yep. I learned a lot going into fund two and you and I sparred on those things and we can yep. get into it. And two, nobody knew what an angel fund was and nobody had ever heard of pre-seed. And I'd argue that notation was the single best asset to Defining a category that helped me and my fundraising by defining pre-seed as a category. I think we both did. How about LA? Like if you were to talk about, you know, I mean, we 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 saw many of the similar dynamics in in New York at that time. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons we started Notation, lots of talent, great people starting companies. The big firms weren't really in New York at the time, lack of angel investors. And so there was just a big pool of great people to to fund without like too much competition. Yeah. Definitely see a lot more competition in, in New York now. And more in LA now. So curious, we can talk about Wonder One and Two and Three, but also curious to just hear a little bit more about LA over the last eight years. We love LA. I'm in LA right now, obviously. I love talking about it, but obviously. Yeah. Like what's um, obviously big companies been built here. Like what are the kind of you know people that let, let me give my LA spiel, yeah. if you will. Like people from Outside of LA, still to this day, think of it as like a flashy, superficial Hollywood town. And, you know, there's 10 million people in LA County, not to mention Orange County and surrounding areas. It's bigger than all, but I don't know, eight states. It's a massive ecosystem with yep. tons of industry. Hollywood certainly used to dominate, dominated the world, Western culture. 
guess what? Every Hollywood company in LA is now a tech company. <laughs> tech companies own Hollywood. It's, it's gone the other way. In um, what sense? You know, Amazon and Netflix are right, tech right, first yep. companies that are the yep. biggest producers of content yep. in this town now. Yep. Not to mention YouTube and Facebook and, you know, social media, if you will, right? It has the word media in the name, but it got overlooked. I'd are 2014, definitely. I think really LA is getting the respect we deserve as a startup, as a entrepreneurship city, but it's always had entrepreneurship, just not necessarily in tech. One of the biggest things, which is a part of our strategy, is that it's the same time zone and a day flight to the Bay Area. And as much as people might, you know, have their question about the Bay Area and where it goes in the future, it's still the center of Series A mm-hmm. capital and technology. And so for that partner to lead a deal here take a day trip for a board meeting, not have to worry about time zones for a call is a huge asset for us. And we've never had trouble with traction attracting outside capital. The only thing is the pre-traction capital, which is exactly what Wonder Ventures is here yep. to fill. A lot of people have moved to LA from San Francisco, I think. In yeah, the last, I think, in the I think year a, a story that's not being told enough is the inbound to LA right now. You know, I think a lot of people, certain people in particular have been talking a lot about Miami and yeah. Miami's a a nice place. I grew up on the East Coast. All our grandparents moved down there when they got old and wanted to retire. You want to avoid some capital gains tax as you're on the far end of your career and been successful at it. But people who want to start a career, who want to start a company, who are young and hungry and creative and aren't worried about capital gains tax, which I think is superficial to worry about anyway, but we can get into that, are moving here. And so I've hired two people at Wonder Ventures who both moved here, one from New York, one from San Francisco during the pandemic. The young talent that's starting the next generation of companies is moving to LA pre and during COVID. And not enough people are talking about that because the big loud people on Twitter are yelling about taxes and yep. moving to Texas and Miami. Yeah. I'm going to go on the record and, and, and say that I've actually never been to Miami really? in, in my life, <laughs> <laughs> but which is like a two hour flight from it's New a, York. It's but a fun weekend, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go, <laughs> go, go check it out. You started with, sounds like you had a, you had a single family office and they were, just like, okay, we'll do the basically the whole first fund, the yeah. whole the whole angel really angel lucky fund. to get that done. Where did you start? Like you, you I know you've talked about partners in the past. What were the kind of like the key things that you were trying to do or prove in maybe the first year of, of investing? The first year was totally like proving I could get into deals. Right. I could select good founders. I could help them. I've from day one, you know, I, I look back at my fund one, which has some amazing unicorn companies like Honey and Clutter and and the like. And, you know, I wanted to be the most helpful person on that cap table. Certainly into fund two, I realized it'd be a lot more helpful if I owned more for the work I was doing. But, you know, I was that founder. Our motto is we work for founders, not the other way around. When I was an entrepreneur, I had 28 investors and 26 of them got that. And two of them thought they were my boss the whole time. And mm-hmm. It be, was very clear to me as an investor that if I didn't think my founder could be the best CEO of their own company and I had to help them run their own company and tell them what to do, then we'd already lost. And so we don't invest in founders that we think need that. And the founders that don't need that just use me as recruiting and biz dev and I work for them. I'm, I'm on their team. I think we did a pretty good job of that in Fund One, although we learned, as I alluded to, that ownership matters, portfolio construction matters. What um, was the portfolio construction and strategy for Fund One? It was, I guess, $40 <laughs> million dollars writing 50 to 100K checks. We wrote 30, checks. 50K checks and a couple follow-ons. Yep. And we weren't price sensitive, which worked out well. We, we came in a little bit later to Honey 
we missed the seed round because I hadn't even started the fund yet, but I'm glad I invested in the A round. Would have been obviously an even better returner if I'd gotten in that first one. But the biggest thing was, you know, if you, you have these outlier returners, you need to have as much money and ownership in those as possible in a portfolio construction. And so by fund two, and it was clear that we wanted to do less deals and mm-hmm. do more ownership. And that's where that this pre-seed notion. But honestly, the other thing that really drove it is what I say the catalyst of the angels or put people in business that I was meeting these founders and I was that guy saying, I'm in for 50 when you get a lead. And I fucking hate that guy. Right. I wanted to be the guy saying, I'm in for 500. I'm your lead. Here's the price. Yep. Let's go. Let's stop fundraising and start building. And that's the best part of what I do now with yep. wonder two and three. Who were, I guess, who was leading at that time? Bigger firms? Like who are you doing no, deals with? Most of those early deals were like a hodgepodge of like angels, fifty hundred k just yep. to get to five hundred. Or I had to wait till they had enough traction to raise that you know seed round. You know, mm-hmm. at the time a seed round was you know barely two three million bucks. Um, what what was like investment selection or founder selection to you at that time? Because I when I look back and like a lot of the early. BetaWorks investments I made and honestly, even early notation investments, I, I feel like our process and filters are just much um, clearer mm-hmm. today. And we've done a lot of learning over the last, you know, seven, eight, ten years. Because I do think you actually have a kind of just natural knack for it. Maybe it was because you were a founder, but I'm curious, what were the what were the things you were looking for, basically? Yeah. And in fund one, we can talk about fund two and three. I think in fun two and three, the only evolution is that I've learned my bad habits that either put me in the wrong deals or put me out of actually more likely the good deals. We are still really focused on LA. There's a lot of great firms here in LA. Very few of them, if any, have more than half their money actually in LA. We have over 90% of our capital in LA. So my job is just to know every great founder, early founder in LA. I don't get to invest in all of them, especially if they're second and third time founders. So it's always been founder driven it's been focused on people that just seem like they can execute, that have deep reasons to be solving the problem they're trying to solve. And that's never steered us wrong. We've gotten wise on how to negotiate, you know, what ownership matters, how to lead rounds, what terms to ask for. But I actually haven't evolved a lot in, hmm. in that core kind of best founders in LA thesis. If you were to dig one level deeper into yeah. like, how, how would you describe, like when you come away from a first meeting or second yeah. meeting, like what are the attributes yeah, so of a of a maybe a pitch or a founder meeting that you're like walk away and say, Okay, we gotta do this? Yeah. The mastery of not just, you know, general sales ability to make you believe in what they're selling you, make future founders believe, but you know, complex thinking about go to market, about why this company is gonna exist. A lot of people can have a good idea. But we know at this stage, it's all about execution. So have they like started recruiting people already? Have they thought about go to market already? Like, honestly, at this point, we're just trying to get swings on, you know, at bats, if you will, on, we know we're going to have a a strikeout rate, but we're just trying to get at bats on great founders that at least have a chance to build something because we're pre-traction. And so my biggest risk is that I back someone who can't even ship a product. Right. And and so I'm really thinking about that. On the flip side, maybe a level deeper on what I some things I learned pretty quickly that were bad. And this is 
I don't know if it's controversial, but it might be not what you think. I've learned that too much diligence has always been one of my biggest flaws. Mm. We're so early that when I try to go deep in a market and get five experts on the phone before making writing a check, that they more than likely talk me out of things I should have done. Mm. And that if I've got the gut and I've got the executor, that experts are at the old company, the big company for a reason. They're not starting the new company. And yep. I, I've been talked out of more good markets for yep. the wrong reasons that into them. There's a specific one. There's some companies here in town. I mean, there's a there's a company here in town called Boulevard that's a miss and they're building SaaS for barbers and nail salons. And, hmm. you know, everyone said, oh, SMB sales is terrible. Right. But these were just two amazing founders who I knew could ship product and should have hmm. backed them the second I met them. Hmm. Yeah, we have a lot of those in New York over the years. So how about Wonder One versus Wonder Two? I mean, and how about actually Solo? GP. I know you've talked about partners. I'm curious, maybe in raising funds, what the impact of that has been, maybe some of the pitfalls and maybe some of the some of the advantages that you have being being yeah. being solo. Well, I didn't set out to be solo, right? The first four million was only enough to support one person. Right. And fund two, we raised fifteen, which was a really hard, long slog. And I kind of got started raising that without a partner and kind of... That was 2017? 2017, yeah. We've been aligned in that. I've always wished I had a partner. And like I said, at the beginning of this, Nick and Alex specifically have been great because we're on such a similar path that I can call them. And they're the few people in the world who understand early pre-seed fundraising. But in the fun two... Going into fund three phase, I th- I actually did some founder funder excuse me partner dating yeah, and thought about it long and hard and you know there's this there's some point where I got to where wonder all of a sudden you know basically when Honey exited where I I had returned to fund and I yep. knew I could do this and I didn't need a partner and you know for now at least we're focused on being small and LA focused and it works really well with one gp i have amazing team members on my team who've helped me build this and i don't know where they'll grow to but i hope they grow into great things and so i'm not who knows where that will go but bringing in a partner from top down at this point we've we've kind of gone past the one anecdote that might be interesting for your your listeners is you know a lot of lps ask you know i don't know about single gp they used to ask that more it's actually yeah. As you know, solo capitalist now is a thing. Yeah. But in 2017, it wasn't. You were OG. And I actually made the point then, which they say, well, what if you get hit by a bus? And I said, what's more likely I get hit by a bus or two partners break up? Yep. And like, I hope my hit by bus rate is less than one in a thousand, let's say. Yep. Probably less than that. But founders breaking up, I mean, even one in 10, one in 20. You know, and yeah. so I feel like there was also this common thread around the solo GP, maybe once upon a time, maybe it's gone now, around just decision making and having a few partners pushing against each other and asking different types of questions and seeing different things. And I think I think later stage makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. If you're doing a hundred million dollar check and you're trying to pick a winner in a space, yeah. you better make sure you know what you're doing. Diligence is different then. And two, I'm if not you're sure trying it is to in this well, market, but yeah. you know, if you're trying to be a national fund and you're trying to cover different verticals, but you know, once you can create some focus, either vertical or geography, you don't need, you know, that doesn't matter as much. No, I, I agree with you. I, it's interesting how that's evolved over over yeah. recent years. What was strategy for fund two and maybe you're on fund three now? What were some of the big lessons learned or or iterations? I mean, fundraising, I remember that. Fund, fund two was also pretty hard for us. 
Yeah, what what what's changed maybe on that side? I mean, obviously some some outcomes, a track record well, fun changes. To, fun to took a full two years, right? Like a year yeah. to get the first close, and then the full twelve months yep. to get there. It was all family offices and friends and high net worth, and until the last second. And we both, you know, give a lot of credit to Sandana, who was yep. the only institutional of probably a hundred plus I pitched that came into fund two with the pilot check. So I give Michael and Graham and Kelly and everyone over there a lot of credit because they saw what pre-seed could be and yep. you know where the market was going. I think fund three <laughs> honey sold in November, 2019. And I went out the next month to raise and it took <laughs> three months nice. and you Good hear timing. this story of young, young emerging managers probably, you know, don't like to hear it, but it's really hard until it's not. And then yep. all of a sudden it flips. Obviously, if I were to change strategy or grow significantly, it could change again. But we're pretty focused on on staying focused. And then the last thing is is that portfolio construction strategy, which is fund two and three now are LA focused. So our LPs know kind of what they're getting in their portfolio of fund investments. They want LA exposure through us. And we are only doing about 20 to 25 companies trying to own 10% of every one of them. And so if and when we have had our big wins, you really see how they move the multiples in the portfolio. Yep. And most importantly, I work my butt off and my team does for them and it feels a lot better when you own more of the company and yep. you're working your butt off. So we do like 25 to, we really are closer to 30. Yeah, we have two people. 20, 20 sounds scary to me just because it's really early in our in our business. There's high loss ratios as in the 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 normal way to say that is a lot of startups fail. 20 sounds scary to me, but I guess you maybe have enough data at this point to know that 20 is the right number. How do you choose 20? It was just a function of of the math, right? We had so in, in let's say fund 3, right? We have 30 million dollars and so we did, you know, 15 of initial employment and and say so you, you know, you kind of just divide 15 by 25 and that's how you get to our kind of initial check size. I think the number has to be you know, I, I think 20 to 30 is that range, basically. Right. That be- above 30, you start to be spreading it too thin. Yep. And below 20, you're you're too small. I think we wound up with 23 in fund two at a core level. We had, I think, four more that were kind of less. And, and honestly, the learning there is I probably should do less non-core checks. We've actually... Do you? Yeah. Yep. You know, every time I, I, have, a, I have a non-core check in, in fund two that has been wildly successful, but it's, you know, it's even at a huge markup worth, you know, 10, 15% of the fund at a return. Right. And so, but I have a wildly successful company I owned 11% of, and it's a 10 X on the whole fund. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've done a bunch of non-core stuff too. And there's been a few, a couple in there that have been really successful and we sized our non-core a lot smaller, Mm -hmm. but now in looking back, I'm like, why didn't we just, write a regular check and just we own less, but it's been really successful and meaningful. And if we had just written a regular check, it would have actually been meaningful. I, I think that's right. If I can break my strategy, but I should write the same 750 into that, even yes. though it's at a 30 post instead yes. of a six post, because I better believe in it that much. Yeah, that that I think when we I think that's been a small change for us between two fund two and fund three. I think this fund will do some non-core stuff, but We'll just write a regular check into it. Unfortunately, we own less than a typical company, but if it ends up being really huge, it'll still be meaningful. I think the challenge also is you don't want the whole fund to all of a sudden look like non-core stuff. We don't own enough. So there is some balance there. But one thing, we've become a little more opportunistic around the edges around that 
stuff over the years. Yeah. And, and, you know, certain trends push you there. So in fund three, I did a non core check, you know, it was a 20 post, which was high for me in a web three company. Yeah. And it's been marked up twice since then. So, so far so good, but I'm glad I wrote the full check size. I didn't yep. just put in a hundred in that one uh, yep. because it's still meaningful and web three outcomes have that dichotomy that could go big enough that even yep. if it- so when you think about wonder three, yeah, $30 million to wonder one, $4 million. And also just the, the time that's passed markets changed. I'm curious. I think about this a lot. Like what, what are you maybe more confident in today and less confident in today in your, yeah. in your kind of general strategy? I'm as confident as ever in LA. I'm a very biased homer, but I continue to see young people flocking here to be creative, to start things. We hope to back all of them. I'm as confident as ever in going as early as possible as an investor that the risk return ratio is in our favor the earlier you go, but you need to own a lot early. And so, you know, Eric Paley at Founder Collective is a friend and it was an investor in my startup and he's a big you know, proponent of get your ownership early and don't mm-hmm. cost average down too much. And we certainly have seen that in our investments. But the things I'm not sure about is that overall market that, you know, I think there are so much capital, so many new funds flowing into the market. And I think founders get a little confused and, and there are a lot of people throwing money around at valuations that can hurt companies in the long run that aren't helpful, even hurtful. So really trying to coach our founders through this plethora of funding options, which is probably net positive, but I still scares me. And the last thing I'd say, which I probably wouldn't tweet because I don't want to take it out of context, but I'd say it long form is I think there's too many startups. Everybody wants to be a founder and there's somebody looking for founders and wanting to fund them. That's amazing. But sometimes there's a growth company, you know, we have a company here, whatnot, that's our, you know, a rising unicorn in LA out of our fund too. That's got the most amazing team and technical culture. And my own associate went there to be chief of staff. I advised her to do it because being at a high growth pre-IPO company is an amazing opportunity to learn and build networks and mafias, you know. And if everyone didn't go work at those companies and started their own companies, it would disperse talent too much. And sometimes aggregating talent into the best product market fit companies is better for ecosystems and better for all of us. So I'm not going to say who should be doing what, but I do worry sometimes that so much funding and so much founders disperses talent too much. I'm I'm thinking of two things I saw, I don't know, randomly on Twitter or the internet recently. One was all these growth IPO companies that are probably overvalued and people are leaving, not not joining. And maybe whatnot is in a different category. But that's going to be, yeah, how do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that's going to be a challenge for a lot of these companies in the next year or two in terms of retaining talent when they were way overvalued to start and people don't actually value the, the equity. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen that, you know, people are, are smart now about their equity. And so yep. they'll move around every two, three years, um, you know, even four years, a long time in startup world, which is your standard vest. Fortunately, and maybe, and unfortunately for both of us, we were early enough that we don't have too many companies that I think got on the wrong side of yeah. growth valuations. Although I guess I wouldn't be so mad if I had some of those big decacorns so that my companies that are up there, I think are properly valued. I don't have too many that I'm really worried about. 
The other thing that I was that I was actually I think I'll, I'll give give Beezer credit for this because I think it was I think it was a thread that she just tweeted the other day and we've we've had her on the podcast. She's hosted a couple Origins podcasts. She was showing this chart, initial checks and ownership first follow on, and ratios across different funds of different sizes. And to me, the data seemed to support effectively investing a lot more capital upfront than in follow-on capital. And if we look even across our funds, like fund one was basically, it was small, like it was an $8 million fund, very small. I think like 90% of our capital went into initial investments. We had a tiny bit for follow-on. Fund two is maybe like 70% into initial investments. And fund three is could be like closer to 50-50. And I'm starting to rethink that a little bit, partly from our own practice and data, but partly also from this from this chart. And I'm thinking like, why not why not you, you mentioned 15 out of the 30 into initial investments? Like why not why isn't that 20 or 30? Yeah. Why not just put it put it all into initial investments if you think that's the best risk reward? Yeah, we're not far from that. So we only do really one round of follow-on. And so we're pre-seed. So we're usually following on into a seed or if they've gone really quickly, which we love, in A. And so we don't reserve for the B, C, D, right. you know, growth rounds. Similar. I'm okay because I still feel like I'm really early in the cycle. We probably have about half our companies get follow on and, and we kind of follow on with a similar or slightly larger check. And then we move to other things like SPVs as they grow bigger, because I think that is a different capital stack. Yeah, that's a good point. I get, I get what you're saying. So in other words, like even though there's more reserve for follow on, it's still the vast majority of it is still going into basically seed, which is re- still really early. Yeah. Um, which is, you I see, guess, what we do too. But you see funds, and I'm sure Beezer's data probably comes with this that like, you know, reserve three fourths for follow on. Right. And so they're thinking that we get a home run and we're, our initial check was a million. We're going to put 25 million to that right. company. Right. We put in a million in the first check and a million in the second check and yep. we're out. Yeah. And, and so yep. I think there's different. That, that definition probably needs to be figured out between the stage. So SPV, as you mentioned, I know you've done, maybe not a bunch, but you've done... I think I've done about 12. 12, okay. So that's that's a bunch. I think we've maybe done four or five over the years. I think we've already... Oh, right. I, I, I kind of think we've done it. We can't quite figure out how to do them, basically. I'm still figuring it out. They're a challenge for lots of different reasons, managing founder expectations and getting the right allocation, then running around town and getting LPs to do them and information sharing. So we're, like, there's just a million different yes, reasons why they're, all why they're a challenge. Some people do them phenomenally well and do like SPVs at scale. I think you've done it pretty damn well. And I don't know if you're willing to talk about specific companies, but you've been very successful at doing, I know a few deals you've done that have done really well. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, yeah, what you do there, how you approach it, maybe why, what you think has worked well? Cause I know you've, I, you've done it well in my view. So yeah, for, for SPVs, we've done about 12 of them and it's been a, a brain hurt every time we do it. So I have not figured it out. And are those all companies that you had previously funded or you're a little more, I think you've been a little more opportunistic. We've been a little opportunistic. Yeah. And to be honest, when we've been opportunistic, we've been rewarded handsomely. Obviously Coinbase was a SPV only and and a big returner for us. I try not to do them unless I have a lot of conviction. And I think that's the difference between me and a lot of people who are, you know, Angel is an amazing platform. I've done syndicates on it, but there's a 
cult industry of people who just will SPV anything they can get an allocation in yep. and to random people they don't know on the internet. Yep. And I try to stand behind all 12 of my SPVs with the conviction I stand behind my fund. And as a result, I've probably turned down twice as many SPVs and yep. check companies I am in and have pro rata rights on, but I'm not quite sure about them at that time. But everyone is a new puzzle, a new fundraise, and it's it's gets tiresome and it's why people like you and I and successful managers start to think about opportunity funds and growth funds because, you know, you want to be able to stand with your conviction the same way you do with your standard investing and right. having to redo that every time is, yeah. is tough. Yeah. So what has worked well? Like, I guess, what's your, what's your process? You find one you really love. So the easy process is, you know, whatnot, right? Andreessen's leading the series A. We have 2 million of, of al- pro rata allocation by right. Yep, And I call my LPs and say, you have a week to give me your number and I'll do it pro rata relative to the fund. And we filled it. It still took a lot of work over two weeks, but it was how pretty much, straightforward. How much information do you share or can you share? I usually, I, I always ask founders. I'm very sensitive to that. Yep. We often have NDAs. You know, with our LPs, we kind of have an LD, NDA yep. type relationship anyway. But I think that one I didn't have financials. I only had a deck. And then I like verbally would, you know, talk to high level financials. I mean, the numbers were unbelievable. So it was yep. a pretty obvious one. Sometimes, you know, Arcadia is one of our best investments out of Fund One, an amazing kind of plaid meets Stripe meets Twilio. I know it sounds too good to be true for climate data. Awesome company. And I've raised five SPVs for that company alone. And every time it's a new fight because people don't quite get it. But I have that conviction and I'm glad I did it. I should have raised 10 times more money for them if they if people got it. So sometimes it's worth it. And you have and then in that case, the founder you know, has a lot of faith in me and we're mm-hmm. open relationship and is willing to share data and even take phone calls. And, yep. But that's, you know, there's an almost inverse inverse correlation with most companies between like data ability and founder willingness to take a phone call and right. how hot and easy it is to raise the SPV. Right. Sometimes you get a, a conviction, not hot one, which Arcadia is now hot, but it wasn't at the yep. time. Yeah. Those have been really tough for us when there's like, you know, when Sequoia is not leading and we just love the company. We've been close to it. And, you know, a lot of our LPs are like, rightly so, like, this is this is your job. It's not really our job to necessarily make Series A investment decisions. And so, yeah, it's just been hard, I think, in a lot of those situations where it's not obvious to get folks over the line. I mean, like in Bison Trails, did you have SPVs? I guess that was pretty hot. Yeah, we way. couldn't get an allocation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in that one. Fortunately, we were the first investor, so we we had you know. I definitely think but. you know for those listening, and I I've heard some initial thoughts. There's opportunity here for someone to look at the emerging manager that has access to the best companies and isn't fully utilizing it, and help in a mutually beneficial way. Yeah, you know, help us fill. Yeah, it. the other thing is I find more and more LPs will say they want to do. SPVs or direct investments, and then when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, they're it's it's more difficult for them than maybe they think. Yeah, especially if there's you know fees and yeah, slightly maybe similar ish topic, although a little bit different. Secondaries, we've done one or two in the last year or so. Anecdotally, hearing a lot of others, I know you've done a couple. Just to be clear, this is us selling shares. Yep. Rather than rather than buying shares in startups that are doing well, increasingly I've found that it's become uh, much more like broadly accepted in the market. Founders are doing secondary. Actually, many founders that we worked with, like a couple that we did, the founder was like, "Actually, wouldn't mind you doing some because there's a lot more demand." 
so curious how you think about that, both from like a, a fund strategy perspective and how you've approached those. Yeah. There are some firms that are like, we don't do secondary. We're ride or die till the very end. We're not in that camp. I think that like particularly if it's a really big position, company's doing great, makes some sense to de-risk a little bit. For the founders too, by the way, I tell I tell most founders that they have an opportunity that they should consider it. So yeah, curious how you think about it. Yeah, for, for secondaries, I mean, listen, the market went from not like pretty hard to do to pretty frothy the last year, year and a half. And I think it's quickly calmed down, actually. I think secondaries today, mm-hmm. even versus three, six months ago, are, are harder to get done. A lot of people who were buying secondaries the last three to five years killed it, you know, into some of these IPO companies. Right. You know, obviously, famously, Saka did a lot of that in, mm-hmm. in his companies. I think that for us, it's very different as an early stage fund. It's a whole point of our strategy, which is a single company, a single position at high ownership can return not just the whole fund, but multiples of the fund. Yep. And so I try to make those decisions with a fiduciary lens and IRR lens to my LPs versus thinking that I can time macro markets yep. or can predict my companies. And so I have had only two examples and both times I sold minority pieces and returned material portions of the fund. In one case, 2x the entire fund at right. a minority sale of a position. Right. And so that means like you selling 10 I sold or 20% of a position so, yep. and returned 2x the entire fund yep. in a company. And, you know, at that point, I'm returning LPs three years into a fund 2x their entire money. Yep. It's a great IRR. I still think that company has huge upside and it may look financially not the best sale five years from now when they IPO, but I still have 70% riding. So I think we'll all be pretty happy. And I wasn't trying to time it. I wasn't not believing in the company. I just, that IRR calculation and fiduciary to my LPs. And I was a little worried I might get some pushback and every LP was happy to have yeah. two extra money. Yeah, back. I think putting some points on the board builds a lot of confidence and and, and, and fans. I, and I hope it allows me to not have to sell any, or not have to, but I don't plan on selling more of this company in the yep. future, right? Now we're riding And it. founder was cool with it? I mean, founder, obviously. Founder was cool with it. I Wanted mean, it? Yeah, founders recognized, I went to them, so I would never do it without pretty good blessing. They had a investor who they wanted to get, they wanted to get that allocation to someone, so that was yep. good mutual. And most importantly, they know me. I've been there since day one with them. I, I explained the exact economics of why I was doing it. Yep. And they were honestly great and proud that I could return 2x to my investors yep. through them. And that's the kind of alignment we look for with founders. And, and yep. there was no signaling negative otherwise. Last question. What is the future? Fund four, five, yeah. 10? What does that look like for you? You know, I'm, I'm a sing- simple man, Nick. And as anyone who's listened this far into the podcast knows, I love LA. I love the community here. I love the, the focus and the diversity of thought, the diversity of people, diversity of companies. I've obviously put down all my roots and my family and my kid here. And I, I'm planning to stay small and fund the best founders in LA earlier than anyone else. It's certainly hard as we know, good friends and good investors getting bigger and bigger and taking on the behemoths. But I feel blessed to do what I do and work with great founders every day. And so until further notice, that's that's where I'm going to stay. There's definitely some opportunities to do kind of, you know, JV type funds and opportunity funds and kind of grow some of what we do. But I think we'll always derive our best branded value from just being the best early investor in LA. And so staying focused on that, trying to get a little time to work on my golf game, you know, visit you in New York. Standard VC. What is a JV fund? We see an opportunity in LA for some thesis. I, I don't actually know, but 
and we can help, you know, somebody, one of our founders deploy some capital into an area we ah, don't know as well, you know, got it. things like that. I, I don't want to overdefine it. I actually, that's a hypothetical that TBD. I haven't spent much time on. Yeah. Thanks, man. Been amazing to see you build Wonder over the last seven, eight years. Eight years and amazing to be kind of virtual partners. Been, yeah, it's been it's been really fun to have a great thought partner on this coast where I'm I'm spending more time. Yeah, very excited for you in the future and, and our unofficial partnership <laughs> for many years to come. So thank you for doing this. Cool. Thanks, Nick. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first track venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital.